Hey, what's up, guys and girls? My name is Gray, and this is another episode of the Gray Half Podcast. And today we have another exciting guest by the name of Jonas Koffler. I know to some of you the name rings a bell, and to some of you not, but John is a best-selling author of Hustle, The Power to Charge Your Life with Money, Meaning, and Momentum. Uh, and it ended up to become a New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Indiebound, and USA Today bestseller. It has been published in multiple languages and 15 countries globally, and Fortune says it is a must-read for an entrepreneur. And I read it uh, last year, I remember, and picked up a lot from it, which I hope uh, you guys can sort of get a sense of the book uh, just by my interview with um, John and if you haven't checked it out definitely I recommend that you check out the book and I will put the link in the description uh, as far as everything that's said in the podcast as well so right before we jump in uh, I'm just going to give you a, a, a more detailed description of John uh, John is also a stroke survivor turned yoga practitioner and meditator, a startup co-founder, a writer and a film media producer, and an entrepreneur involved in numerous ventures. So in our conversation, we got into a lot, but my intention was to make this episode about a hustle guide for artists. So I thought John is actually the perfect person for that because he is an artist and he wrote the book Hustle, which actually goes in detail on how you can sort of hustle out your career. And obviously, the principles applies to sort of any spectrum of your life. For me, this is a very important topic, especially myself being an artist. Uh, there are a couple of things that I've been struggling with over my career as an artist. Uh, for some of you who are not familiar with this, I am a CGI artist, if there's such a thing. It means I am a digital artist. I do computer-generated imagery, even though I do not get to do a lot of that at the moment because of my other entrepreneurial ventures. So my time is split between uh, among all the things that I'm involved in. But uh, being an artist is something that I definitely am and I've always been. So from that experience, I'm familiar or I know some of the problems that artists get in trouble with or they struggle with. You know, for, uh, one of the common examples being handling art and business, even though it can be one thing. Uh, but the split between the two to be able to do great art and to manage the business side of it is something that I've struggled with over the years. And I know a lot of artists out there uh, find this difficult. So uh, it, this was also part of our conversation on how you can bridge the two. And of course, among other areas on this. Uh, one uh, aspect of the interview that struck out to me was uh, about health as well because as i said john is a stroke survivor so he has uh, a few lessons to teach on that and uh, i mean definitely from his story which happened of course many years ago 
but uh, the principles that applies today, you know, he overworked himself to the point that he had stroke as a side effect. Uh, so I picked up something from that and I hope you guys do too as well, like I said. And before I close, just want to remind you that uh, the Greyer podcast is not supported by any ads and I do that intentionally. I do not uh, want to contaminate the content with any sort of advertising. So it's self-funded. Uh, so I would appreciate it if you support it. And the way you can support it, actually, is not with any sort of money. It's just by sharing it on your social media. If you're listening on SoundCloud, you can uh, repost. And if you're listening via iTunes or the podcast app, uh, I would appreciate it if you leave me a five-star review. Other than that, I hope you enjoy it. If you have anything else to say, you can drop it in the comments on my website, which is www.greyjabesi.com. And other than that, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you. It's it's uh, quite hot here in New York. Uh, kind of, it, you know, the, the temperature fluctuations are a little crazy, so it's <laughs> it's weighing on my soul to some degree. But it's. Uh, it's lovely, uh, you know. It's uh, spring has finally hit. I, I guess you guys are in fall down there, correct? We are actually supposed to be in winter. We are in winter, essentially. But oh, you're in uh, winter. Okay, right. Sure. Uh-huh. Yes, but but like I don't know what's happening. It's still almost summer. We're still getting like hot days, and there's a water problem actually here now. <laughs> Which it, is it, do you have a shortage, or, or what is it? Yeah, because of no rainfall uh, for a very long mm. time. Now we have like. We're running at about 20% of our water storage. Oh, man, that's terrible. Yeah, so the tap water is almost undrinkable, you know. Oh, my God, that's horrible, bud. Stay yeah. hydrated somehow. Yeah, <laughs> we're trying. I'm, I'm actually drinking milk right now because I forgot to buy water when I was coming down home from the office. So, wow. Yeah, it's kind of like that. But and tell me, that, great, what, what part of uh, Cape Town are you in? Because, you know, my wife and I, uh, had a wonderful opportunity to go some years back in May 2010, so just before the World Cup, and we absolutely fell in love with uh, with South Africa. It's such a wonderful place. The people are amazing. The landscapes and scenery are off the chart. It's just a magical, magical place. Um, what, now, what part of the city are you in? I'm actually in the CBD, like right in the center. I live... Uh, my office is on Long Street, which is like popular street for like a party it never gets dark there it's like always vibing <laughs> and then my house uh, is just a couple of meters away from there as well so like i live right in the center of the city um so okay know, like interesting I can, yeah i can feel the, the mountain very close the ocean is very close so mm-hmm. yeah it's pretty nice setup yeah, and I imagine you draw a lot of inspiration from that. We can talk about that in the interview. Uh, for reference, we stayed at the Granddaddy uh, on Long Street. Yes. Do you know the place? Yes, of course. With uh, the trailers on top? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know the Granddaddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, we had a good time. It was, it was an interesting trip. We, we really enjoyed it. I wish we had more time. Maybe next time we can have a meal in person or something. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely an amazing city. Are you, like, based in New York? So, I can kind of unpack this on the call, but on the interview, but basically, I, I'm, we are based in Austin, Texas, which is a very low-key, sort of funky city. 
in in the U.S. and then we're between Los Angeles, where we have some ventures out there, and then in New York, where you know I do a lot of literary stuff, and um, uh, as I mentioned, the TV pilot and. Uh, other things that we're working on, and uh, we'll probably be re relocating, spending more time in New York, but we bounce around between L.A., Austin, New York, and Vancouver, primarily, right. and Mexico City to some degree. If you go to a party or to, to a dinner table and a stranger come to you and say, what exactly is Hustle, or what is, what is your book all about? How do you break that down? Sure, sure. So just so I'm clear, Gray, and, and Apostle, so we are recording, yeah? Yes, we are recording. Okay, great. Okay. Yeah. So how I would break down hustle is the following. Um, you know, what we were trying to do in approaching this concept that we felt was very sort of zeitgeisty and really is about um, enshrining and celebrating the spirit of creating your own model for life, especially given um, what we see as a, a very much an anachronistic or outdated, uh, rigid and very conditioned model. Um, that's been imposed on us for you know for a hundred years or <laughs> not more um, is to say look there's another way of living uh, you don't have to go through life in, in the, the the general motions of you know being born and going to school and then sort of um, figuring out what you're interested in um, saddling yourself up with debt often um, and then joining a workforce buying a car marrying taking out the mortgage having kids finding your career and so forth um, we think there's another way to orienting to what's really what you, given that life is very short, that you alone are responsible for your own happiness. Um, you can't, um, and you have to search for it and sort of discover who you are. And so we thought about what is a word that's sort of representative of that, but is also representative of um, a word that's kind of in currency now that everyone seems to be using, but some people are using for maybe the wrong reasons or. Um, unclear reasons and that's how we came up with this idea of hustle and the, the idea is that um, you can shake free of general convention and find a more adventurous way in of moving forward in the world through creative problem solving and personal innovation and re reinventing who you are along the way and also sort of channeling or tapping your well of imagination because if you simply uh, ape or, or copy what everyone else is doing then how do you really know who you are and what makes you happy uh, and so that's what we saw it as. It's really kind of an antidote to um, the pain that so many people are feeling and really drawing on a lot of small risks and everyday experiments um, and the, the types of entrepreneurial approaches that allow us to service our talents and push us toward the pursuits that ultimately reveal our best selves, right? They, they're the, the things that, the tools, the, the, the tactics, the techniques, the, the ways of, um, of moving in a way that makes us feel not only more human, and more like ourselves would allow us to be ourselves um, and then to consciously create the life that you want and so that's what hustle really means the way that we've defined it um, which is somewhat antithetical to you know simply putting your head down and running through a brick wall um, when you need to tackle something is uh, is instead a little more nuanced and the definition is decisive movement toward a goal however indirect by which the motion itself manufactures luck surfaces hidden opportunities and challenges our lives with more money or excuse me cha charges our lives uh, with more money meaning and momentum so that charging or empowering is really code for giving ourselves capacity to to allow you know to sustain our journey through money to make meaning or give ourselves a deeper sense of fulfillment and then momentum which is the the notion that you know we are we are again required to move in life we can't sit still 
um, because that's the only way we're able to enact any kind of positive change is by making things happen. So that's kind of that's in a nutshell, and we can unpack it a little more as we kind of talk through luck and and how it relates to the world of art. Right. So, like I said, one of the first things that I wanted you to break down as well is the 10-minute rule. Because, to me, that's something that I, you know, I don't know if you do this, John, but like, I like to keep a few things to remind me of the things that I have to always pay attention to. So I have like a few quotes, a few videos, a few excerpts from the books that I, I always have to get back to to remind me of a few things. So, the 10-minute rule is one of those things where like, I actually checked it out uh, last week sometime because I was mm -hmm. tired uh, dealing with a lot of things and then I lost track of a few things that I, um, I was working on. So just break down what, a, what the 10-minute rule is for those who are not familiar with it because I read it from your book. Sure. Well, let me give you a little more context first about how we arrived at this. I think right. that, uh, that most people are trapped by a couple of things, especially sort of this, as artists, we, you know, people who can be somewhat neurotic about our own art. Um, and also, you know, if we're staring into a blank canvas, there's always a big question, what do we do? And how do we do it? Uh, and so if, we're, if we then expand that into the big navigational questions around, and existential questions around life, you know, who am I, where am I going, how do I get there? We can apply that to the art world. We can apply that to our, our professional lives. Um, but part of it is simply getting beyond ourselves or getting out of our own way. That's so hard to do for so many people. I think everyone can struggle with that on any given, in any given day. Um, and so how do we do that? We came up with this idea of the 10-minute rule because we think we're creatures of habit. We're, we're, and I'm a big believer of rituals and establishing positive rituals. And I think it's, just, it's a little bit uh, to break through our self-imposed friction, that, that inertia that we have or we wake up with every day. Right? How do we get started? So the 10-minute rule is very simple. It's a way for anyone to stay or become more productive sort of instantaneously, be present in what they're doing and th their work, so being focused, right? And then putting themselves in a place of, of, of momentum. And so the, the way that we, we do this, and, and the reason we practice is because it, it saves us some degree of pain, suffering, and headaches, and allows us to quickly move from the madness of mastery or the, what we call the perils of perfection into this sort of imperfect um, yet active uh, sort of change agent in our, in our own lives. And so this is the way it works. Basically, we can um, do something for 10 minutes and, and not over-evaluate or over-analyze. It's the spirit of going from dreaming or thinking or overthinking into direct action. So for example, uh, if you are contemplating, and this applies again across different spectrums of, of human experience. So if you're thinking about taking a hike or doing exercise, you might think, 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 and then never do it, right? And then the next, sort of the day goes by and you haven't done anything. If instead you just get out, you don't overthink it, and you put yourself in motion for 10 minutes, you're going to find that you're, you're, you've liberated all that weight of your mind. And you can now, you're now actually in, in progress or in action or in motion. Um, the same is true uh, for, let's say, you're a writer or a musician or some kind of artist start illustrating, start playing your music or composing something, right? Start writing, but do it for 10 minutes without any judgment. Remove that heavy burden or that weight of thinking you have to get it perfect or right. And instead of, of, of thinking about like that perfection, do something really awful. Like just make something completely uh, discordant or you know maybe it's a sketch that is a simple study that looks horrible. That's perfectly okay. 
because doing the, the bad work will eventually lead you to doing good work. But it's, again, getting out of your own way for 10 minutes. So in very practical, in a very pr sort of practical, pragmatic sense, um, it's sitting down, or if you're, you're a stand-up uh, kind of person, if you prefer that, it's focusing for 10 minutes. You can set your clock and just start moving. Turn off all of the things that are, you know, that are distracting to you. Uh, put your phone, your phone on air, uh, airport mode, airplane mode and close out your social media and just try to hone your focus a little bit. And if you can do that for 10 minutes, we argue that that'll lead you to um, finding a longer period of success. You know, maybe it's another 90 minutes of effort. You can just sort of keep repeating until you need to take a break and can be unfocused again. But again, the whole, the whole idea, the premise, is just to put yourself in motion without overthinking things because that re takes you out of your head and puts you into a place where you're actually productive. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, to the people listening, I hope like they, uh, they picked up from that because that's what I actually, I think I've talked a little bit about that in the podcast, like just finding a moment where you can disconnect from everything and just get started with exactly what you need, we need, to, we need to be doing. Just to point out, like, for example, social media is really, really hard to, to turn off and like disconnect for a lot of people. I used to be one of those people as well, but you know, now I'm like over it. So, like I told you, the one uh, the, the most important part of this episode to me was a hustle guide for artists. Uh, for myself, being an artist as well, and I know I follow you like you're uh, you're an artist. There is a a situation or an instinct of where if you're growing up as an artist, you know you want to make great art, and you know you 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 develop your skills, working hard and harder to get better at what you do, and then that tends to also turn off the other side of the spectrum where you had to be uh, active. For, on, my, on my end, for example, in my experience, I, was, I, I could work on art and become better at art, but then I had a problem that I couldn't generate cash out of it. I couldn't make money. So my life was becoming difficult, but I was making great art. And it's still the, uh, this, the problem that I see among other artists as well, like some of my friends and stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of artists are kind of in the same situation where like, they can make great art, but they can't sustain themselves financially. And then when I turned on the other side to actually say, look, I want to uh, change over my life and you know, balance the two together so that I can make great art and at the same time make a great income in something that I really do well, it ended up that I was spending more time on generating cash or making money out of my art than actually making the art itself. So it kind of limited my growth in the art itself. I don't know if you understand what I mean, but like the question I guess now is like, how do you balance the two to say you can still be able to grow in your art, practice and do the things you want on the other side, still um, grow your income and make a good living out of what you're doing? I think they're, they're not mutually exclusive ideas. Uh, on the contrary, Gray, I think uh, if we've learned anything from some of the most successful artists, uh, their success has brought them or given them the ability to take on more risks and try more interesting experiments with their art. It's allowed them to grow. And so, I, but I also think, uh, especially younger artists, grapple this idea that um, you, know, you have to starve or suffer to become a good artist uh, yes. or to, to create great work. And there may be some degree of or shred of truth to that, but I would argue that it's not 
the suffering that makes the great artist. I think we're all human beings, and I think the essence of humanity is some degree of suffering. And that's not only true of human beings, it's true of all animals, right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's not hard to look at in the eyes of someone else or a dog on the street and say, wow, there's some suffering or some pity that I can feel for that that being, right, the sentient being. Uh, but it, and it, it, so, so I, would, I would look at it and reframe it a little bit. I think first, um, move away from the idea of, of you have to starve, you don't have to be a starving artist. In the book, we talk about this at length, we talk starving your starving artist and feeding the hungry hustler. So what does that mean? That means that you move away from this idea of suffering and that you create the space in your life where you can thrive as an artist and you, you're constantly working toward that um, it's not that you're chasing money. You're chasing the ability to sustain the ability to create work and hopefully to do good work and maybe a mix of bad work as well. But the, the idea is it's an upward arc, right, with some dips and peaks and valleys and so forth. And that's, you know, this idea that you are, are sort of a work in progress yourself and your art is a reflection of that. Um, generally speaking, there's no hockey stick type of um, graph for artists. It generally doesn't work that way. I mean, there's a, a very few fit into that unicorn role, you know, Banksy, etc., or Picasso, whatever. Uh, but you don't have to aspire to that. You want to be as, as develop the ability to be a working artist and to be able to gr- draw praise for the work you do. And so, so how? What's that? Part of that is a mindset piece, and I think that the other part of it is a uh, is a work ethic piece, right? So you sh- you know you should commit and focus your imagination, creativity, energy, enthusiasm, resources, and so forth to some degree of, of dreaming about your art and then also doing great art. And in the process as you're doing that, you're developing what we call pop. And pop is important because it allows you uh, to work consistently and sustainably in a way the rest of your life. And that's there are basically four pieces that are important. And these will lead you to developing a platform where people know and like your work and can discover you. Um, and so it, it, it is intuitive to some degree, but the, the basic idea is this. You're a working artist, so you want to be developing your potential. So what does that mean? That means you're developing your skill set, you're working through problems, you're looking at new ways to explore uh, how you can convey your art in the world, whether it's, you know, if it's musical or visual or, or uh, storytelling or, or, or some mix of those, um, architectural, whatever, what have you, film, etc., uh, but you have to work every day toward growth, and that growth will enable you or empower you to continue pushing the boundaries. Um, that's an act of will. All right, that's the hard right. part. I would argue the easier part is putting yourself out there to meet people. So the fir- if the first layer of pop is all about potential, what we call the opportunity capability, the second component is people. No artist survives without. Uh, some kind of patron or some fan or someone saying, or critic for that matter, your work is wonderful, your work is shit. You have to find people who will give you feedback. And it's not only finding people who will give you feedback. You want to find advocates who also uh, support your work or can tell other people about it uh, and hopefully help you promote. And that's about you going out in the world and building some degree of people leverage. right? So the whole, the whole thing about people, this network thing is, it's the opportunity to community. And maybe it's you teaching a class, or maybe it's you doing some kind of public art installation. It's finding a way to connect with people about your work, have a conversation about it, help them understand you and understand your, your work in the world and where it fits and why it's important. Uh, but you need people. So again, it, it's moving from potential, it's working on yourself, to people helping other people and uh, working on that degree of community, which is absolutely critical. And hopefully it's relationships you, you maintain the rest of your life. 
that's that's absolutely critical. The next piece is that whole bucket around projects, and this is where you know hopefully the monetization comes in, right? So you're you're working through your art, or maybe you're you have a professional day job and you're working on your art as a side gig or side hustle. But the idea is to constantly add value through your work and have people respect and admire it and give you feedback and so forth. Um, but you want to also stay productive and take on interesting projects that allow you to grow. Um, and then beyond that, when you've you know if you're able to you know, to create some works that, that draw some response, um, they're your own. And so the, if you're moving from projects, the opportunity of creativity where, you're, uh, where you're, you're growing and you're exploring things, you move into this proof layer. And proof is the highest and most important layer, I would argue, as an artist, because it's the opportunity of credibility. It allows you, Gray, to say, I did that installation and it drew 100 million views or I was able to collaborate on this project and you know we got this review in the paper or online or you know someone someone did a documentary on us because they were blown away by the good that we were doing etc the proof piece is huge because it allows you to get discovered and it, it enhances your reputation it points to some track record of success it also also differentiates you and to some degree it draws on what what i was talking about this 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 luck component that is so critical in hustle and that is, you know, simply putting yourself out there, putting yourself in motion, and getting lucky because people will find you. So, so that all of this is is um, is to say that you're you're looking to build a personal opportunity portfolio of these four pieces: potential, people, projects, and proof. These opportunities combined are going to allow you to thrive in some degree, but it also requires you to stay active and to stay proactive and growing. So, I think that you know, as we started with the the 10-minute rule. Right, the ten-minute rule is really around harnessing your talents and not getting distracted, and knowing that it is going to be an uphill challenge. But you don't have to overthink it. Right, one of the beauties in, in life is that you have the ability to create, and uh, and so if you force yourself into a discipline bubble where you're working every day, even just a little bit, then you can decide um, sort of how big or how small you want to go with each individual project you take on. And so I, I hope that offers a little color. Um, and I say that, you know, I think the pop applies as well to someone who's just starting out as it does to someone who's more advanced. It really is a harmonious uh, cycle. It's interesting. Um, it's like, I mean, I've got over it now, but it, whenever I did something that's not really uh, artistic, like doing some admin or just doing some uh, business side of my art, it felt like I'm actually not doing art itself. Um, until at a later stage, I realized it's like it's just part of you know doing great art and growth. Uh, but like to some people who like might be in a certain situation where uh, just because they focus more on growing as an artist and creating good art, they are in a situation where they don't know any other alternative of what to do, even though they might not be happy with their current situation. Like if they have a full-time job, uh, they're doing art for, for some company, but they're not happy because it's, they're not expressing themselves the way they would if they did it otherwise. Uh, and then it just becomes fate to them. That's like how things are, even though they could change it, but they don't know any other way. What would you, what would be your 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 talk to that kind of person in that situation? How can they plug themselves out? Like, I think the practical question would be: How can somebody get themselves out of the job they don't like and go out and monetize their art? 
Sure. Okay. So as we talked about, right, I, I don't think there's, uh, I mean, I think it's quite simple and I don't think yes. it's, you know, when, when you're moving from the, the assumed or sought security of a job into this, this sort of un, unknown world, right? You're migrating or pivoting. Yes. Um, the main thing to do is to really start developing your self-confidence. So how do you do that? You start taking a little more risks every day. And I think beyond that, you really focus heavily on that people layer, that opportunity of community. Why? Because opportunities are connected to people. People gives you give you jobs. You know, meeting new people may give you an opportunity to get a commission. Uh, perhaps someone needs something, even if it's a small scale project that you can help out with. People will talk about you. The idea is like you you can't possibly advance by overthinking and sulking about how great you are as an artist, but how empty your life feels because you're not having success. Okay, people are your life. People are your life. It's not, not the art alone. It's not commerce. Everything begins and ends with your relationships. And if you forget that or you lose sight of it or you never knew that, then I'm telling you this now. People are your life. And it's when we isolate ourselves, we forget that. And that's the most damaging thing you can do to yourself as an artist because people are hungry for this. Why are they hungry for art? Because art expresses something that we can't, something even spiritual that we can't quite capture or convey. It's almost an ineffable magic that artists uniquely possess. But if you're not out there meeting people and talking about it, even if like the first 50 times you try to meet people, you fail miserably, who cares? You have to keep putting yourself out there, right? And it doesn't mean you have to be the most sociable person, all right? I mean, <laughs> we can look at a litany of artists over the years. who have just been like, horrible people. Uh, in, in when it comes to like you know social situations, you know? <laughs> think of like yeah. Jackson Pollock and ab, like abject alcoholism. You know it, that doesn't matter. You just put yourself out there and like give people an opportunity. Try to treat them with dignity and respect, and be open to their feedback. You don't have to respond to it either way, positively or negatively. Be open to listening, but be open to sharing because people want that. They want that experience. They like artists in their lives um, because I think artists are sort of like the Jedi's in our world. Artists have that special force right and it's it's a, it's such a unique gift and talent and ability and and people crave that and so you have to put it out there and you have to meet people and how do you do it? it's just by striking up a conversation you know hey i'm blah blah blah. i'm an artist here's my work i'd love to share it with you well that's pretty simple right and either they're going to say great or they're going to say i'm not interested that's fine you <laughs> you move on there are, you know eight eight billion people on our planet come on right so uh, let's talk a little bit about how for somebody who is not like used to go out and meet people. Myself, I used to be an, an introvert. I'm still am at the core, but like I learned the skill of actually intentionally going there and meet people for practice just so that I can uh, get together my confidence and, you know, just being able to speak to anyone. Uh, and uh, some of the, I would say, tactics I use was like to just go out and meet 10 people, random strangers, and just talk to them about anything. I don't know, what else would you recommend for people just like to, in the experimental mindset that they can try for themselves? Sure. Okay, so the first thing is, you know, you're, you're not entering into a relationship simply to, <laughs> to sell your work. You're actually instead, yes. like that, that's a great outcome if it happens, but instead, like think about the value exchange or simply supporting someone else listening to people, finding a way to, to feel more connected. And why is that important? So just think about the, the psychological underpinnings. Uh, think about Maslow and other psychologists who historically outlined our need for um, belonging 
and interaction, right? They're key drivers in our lives. And if you think about our like human history and how we evolved out of caves, people wanted to be around other people. Community is the underpinning. And one of the biggest determinants of, of our happiness, our sense of fulfillment in life, is making those meaningful connections. Okay, so how do you actually do that? You have to put yourself in contexts or situations where other people can experience, you know, your kindness or greatness or generosity or empathy, listening, right? And so you can do that at a cafe. Maybe you set up an art night or, or artist hangout night or community-focused night. You know, maybe it's around art therapy or artist healing. Find the local thing, you know, things that you're, you can directly impact. Go to a cafe or a bookstore or create some kind of social gathering. How easy is it to create a Facebook meetup group around something that's interesting? You know, maybe it's a theme for the month that you design and you get other people to collaborate in some kind of public art installation with music and visuals and poetry and so forth. People crave this stuff because it removes them from the doldrums or distractions of the meaningless things in life. The, the politics that are so crazy and charged these days. You know, yeah. who cares about that shit? Come back to humanity. Make Create light in the world. People crave that. So, it, you know, as an artist, I would say part of your responsibility, if you really care, not simply about succeeding, but you care about the world and humanity, moving people forward, is to create experiences that people remember. And maybe it's you going out and you know, making a post on social media or going out and posting flyers or going to a cafe and talking to other people who get it. They're going to say, yes, I'm open to that idea. So you want to do a public installation? Cool. What does that look like? And then maybe there's some fundraising involved. I mean, who knows? Maybe you can do it in a very cheap fashion. Uh, but you have to be open to it. And so part of that is giving yourself or allowing yourself to space to again, navigate through something that might be of interest to people and asking the question, Gray. What can I do immediately in my, like, what's a problem that uh, people are dealing with in, you know, immediately in, in my locality? How might we address that? You know, is it uh, violence against women? Is it um, the lack of public art installations? Is it something along those lines? Start asking those questions and seeing who else would be interested to get behind it. And it doesn't take, you know, 100 people. It may only take a few people to work with you and to go out and join up for support and do something that your community enjoys. It's those kinds of things. And then when you're at, you know, events or whatever, you, know, you introduce yourself as an artist and talk about why you're so passionate, why you enjoy the work that you do and what makes it interesting for you. It's putting yourself out there in those kinds of ways. And again, it doesn't require a massive effort. It's simply shifting and tweaking the way that you approach people. Instead of saying, you know, what's in it for me, ask about what's, what can you do for someone else? Like, that's a great question. You know, so introduce, or, you know, maybe you're, you're in between people. That, that you can introduce, you know, find out what someone's interested in and then think through your, your, your contacts or network about, you know, how you might create a collaborative opportunity be, between people. Um, you know, so that's the common, you know, find the common ground and then try to, try to introduce people who don't know each other. Uh, they're going to, you know, consider you the bridge and that hopefully will lead to other opportunities. Right. It's actually uh, recently, speaking of the experiment and experimental mindset, recently there was this other girl who has a, an Instagram account. So she's a really, really good painter. She's like a digital artist. So she paints and then she puts the portraits online on Instagram for people to see. So like I saw one of her posts and I was like intrigued. I was like, wow, this is great. Now I texted her. I'm like, 
do you can you make this for anyone who asks you to do she's like oh, you know what i'm doing it's for my friends only so all the things that you're looking at i did them for my friends i've never done it for anyone uh for like financial reasons or for to get something from it so i was i was like okay could you do the same for me then uh, i would pay you for it how much would you quote me it took her a while to actually get back to me like over six hours to just come up with how much you want to quote me then i sense that okay she's still at the point where she doesn't feel like her art is good enough just to to get paid for it. just because she can do it she kind of assumes that everybody everyone else can so i said uh do you want to try after a few days i told her to try set up a facebook page put her art out and then just put a set up a facebook ad to say for everyone who wants her his or her face or portrait to be painted uh, should just like go on her website and then ask for it for X amount of money. She tried it for two days and it worked. And right now she just have like so, ma so many clients asking her to paint online like people from all around the world, which she wasn't thinking about at all. So um, I'm just, I just want you to speak on the issue of like, if you're an artist, uh, you, you know, usually you feel like your your work isn't just worth somebody somebody paying for it just because you can do it. I don't know if you have ever sensed that before, or you have heard it from other people. Oh, absolutely, and I think that applies. This this idea applies across the board. So right. the first thing is you need to know your value in the world, the value of the work that you're putting out, uh, and and <laughs> people will pay as little as they possibly can to have it. Right, that's the other thing. Yes. Um, and so you, you know, it's 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 the old adage: or, or is it, um, price is only an issue in the absence of value, right? And with art, it can be somewhat arbitrary, but you have to set some kind of um, a floor because you don't want to be exploited. You know, I, I mean, there's yeah. I can't tell you how many artists and um, and other folks who are doing creative work are exploited every day. And this is absolutely. I was just having this conversation actually with a very prominent video artist here in New York. We're, and we, we talked about this, and, and my sister-in-law, who's a musician, like, people expect artists to do work for free. Yes. Right? I don't know if you've ever experienced this. It's so maybe really when you start, yeah. yeah, maybe when you're starting out, it's like, okay, you know, or if it's a nonprofit or it's some kind of community benefit or something like that, right? I can, you can justify that, but no, no, let's just pause it right there. Your work, your contribution to the world has some degree of value. It, it's always a question of, how do you find out, one, if there's a budget? And so the, the first question is, you know, what's the budget, right? If it's not that kind of relationship, then it's, um, yes, you know, it's establishing a floor. And then if you have to, um, you know, be somewhat flexible uh, because you know what your needs are economically. Like, no one else can tell you that. You know what you need to survive and sustain um, and thrive and, like, how much work goes into each of your work. So, you know, in the, in the case of your friend, uh, um, w ultimately, you know, you, I assume you settle on some kind of price. But the, the suggestion there is, like, you only know by, by testing different price points, right? Yes. And you don't want to commoditize your work because your work is very distinctive and no one else can do it. So you have to play with different numbers a little bit. And it's not that you're grubbing or trying to, you know, um, uh, run one over on someone else. The idea is instead to say, look, my work has value. I'm going to defend the value of it. And, you know, if, if they're not willing to pay for it, then it's probably better that you're not in a relationship with that person. That would be my, my response to it. Um, but I would say, look, you know, look at some, some other artists in your space who've done very well and find out what they're, they're charging for their work. 
and use that as some kind of a barometer. But don't simply default or defer to some you know random price or arbitrary price that someone throws at you. You know, where there's already enough downward pricing pressure, you know, created on on artists and creators by you know so many platforms out there, um, and you know sort of this weird um, you know globalization thing that's happening. You have to stand up, defend. Uh, your work and you have to give it a value and only you can assign what that's worth you know you should know that if you're going into a project what your time is going to cost and is worth or if it's simply the project's completed and now you're putting it out on display then you have to be able to price it appropriately don't settle on that is my advice right so let's quickly jump to um to for folks that are already like established in their business or in their art career, they're doing well. What would or like say freelancers or you know guys who are just like have a art startup of some sort? What would be your um, your advice uh, based on your experience? What are the things that one shouldn't do so that they become successful or they become at least on top of the game? Okay, so the first uh, the first piece is this, um, and I think it's true of. You know, um, of, of all artists, regardless of where you are, you can be completely successful, you can be uh, just starting out, is, uh, is one is, again, not to ever, ever settle um, because your, uh, your body of work should continue expanding and that requires yeah. movement and motion and requires exploration and curiosity and it also requires sometimes that you unplug and disconnect and a little while so you can have a clear mind about it. Um, I think in a day-to-day practical sense, it is a few things. You know, one is is allocating appropriate amount of work time for work every day for being productive, even if it's uh, if it's very subtle types of production. You know, maybe it's or maybe sometimes it's incredibly heavy production, but you have to make time for it and be very focused and be very disciplined about it. the The other piece is to leave ample white space on your calendar. Uh, because you'll find that a lot of breakthroughs and in kind of the innovation in your art and the bigger questions, you can start working through when you have that space on your calendar. You're not assigned anything. It's that unfocus where your your neural connections are free, and you're like, "Wow, this is an incredible epiphany." You know, um, I think that's very important, and and I think part and parcel of that is also um, being very very open to. Uh, channeling inspiration in your everyday, great. I mean, I don't know how many of us do this mindfully, but you know, it right. could be anything from like you being in Cape Town, right? Connecting. How can you not connect with nature and watch the sunset over the ocean or over Table Mountain, right? Or you know, perhaps it's inviting you know friends to your place, or maybe it's making new connections with people and um, and experiencing joy together, or. Or if it's solitude that you need as an artist, and many of us do, I certainly do, it's burying yourself in quiet time or meditative time or taking a long walk or a hike or, or finding an intriguing book with the new ideas that sparks connections and you then apply that to your work in some way or meeting someone new or going on a date, you know, it's, or getting laid or whatever works for you, right? You, you, you want to find that magical rhythm where you're, you're functioning and productive as an artist and you're listening to that rhythm, you're sticking with it, again, developing those rituals, but also working through the, the, the kind of unscheduled space in your life, right? It's unplugging as well. Uh, and that, you're, in, in doing that, right, sort of going, sort of shifting back and forth and focused on focus, you're going to find that, um, I, would, I would argue, you find life more enriching and joyful uh, and colorful, and that you allow that adventure to unfold. Now, it's also to say that, you know, you, again, are, are like, responsible for your own fulfillment, 
So you need to go out and, and push yourself to some degree, but also find ways to pull back when, when necessary. So if it's for you, Gray, maybe it's, you know, four or five hours a day in the studio. Uh, and then it's also finding like a good block of time when you're out of it so you can recharge uh, or, you know, it could be significantly longer if you're on deadline or something like that. But, um, but I think it's, it's again, finding that, that space where you're, you're deeply, deeply engaged in the work and then you're deeply unplugged from it. And, uh, and that's where the, the beautiful balance is because, you're, again, you're working through that sense of self, sense of purpose as an artist, uh, but also propelling yourself into the unknown. And so all of these things kind of work in tandem. Right. Yeah, that's, I, I totally agree to that. Um, and for, on saying living in Cape Town, it's totally, totally a, a big uh, contri- contribution to, my, to how I make my art and how I just make everything work on my side. Like, and my office is situated at a nice spot, like I said, where you can work for a little bit on a break and you go downstairs. So there's a lot of restaurants. If you're a clubbing person, there's a lot of clubs and everything is there. So you can actually disconnect quickly and then you get back to work. Uh, I'm just curious, how did you build your network? Because I, in the last few years, I've actually thought of... Uh, building a network. So for me, it has actually been manufactured over time where I, I had to intentionally go like, okay, I need to build a network, a good, important network. How do I go about it? Then I came up with a few strategies after I read a few books and stuff. How did you build your network? So the, first of all, let, let's deconstruct the word network because the answer uh, um, is mysteriously embedded in, <laughs> in that word. So network, right? So the, the net... Um, and the work. The work part is actually finding other people, going out and seeking them, finding ways that you can help them. So in practical sense, it's, uh, again, looking for those small moments or listening for those small moments of opportunity to interject and introduce yourself and talk about what you do or to, to perhaps compliment someone else that you might see or, or listen to at the cafe, right? Or, yeah. um, or you know, trying a new or novel experience. You know, maybe it's going to a museum and leading a group uh, or maybe it's, um, you know, a, a more of a social gathering and talking about the work you do. But it's putting yourself in a position where you can talk to other people on a daily basis. That's the key piece of it. Um, so the, the, the net of the work is that you're building that community and you're engaging in things that are pa- you know, you're passionate about. And they may be completely um, unrelated to your work. So, you know, for example, let's say you care about... Uh, nature and and preserving habitat for you know the wild baboons and outside of Cape Town or something like that, right? So yeah. you know you, you want to join a group of people who are like-minded, and I mean they're you know you, you'll have one sh- sort of shared value, but you want to talk about you know your art at some point as well, and people want to talk about other things. So it's uh, it's just simply putting yourself in motion where you're coming into contact or those collisions of opportunity and energy. I mean we're all just energy anyway where we're talking to people about different topics. It's, again, it's context. So it's going to the cafe, it's going to the church, it's going to some kind of community center, it's creating experiences, which people want, whether it's uh, you know going to a music show or uh, presenting your work publicly or something like that. Again, it's just getting yourself out there. That's the main thing. But I'll, I'll say, for me personally, um, it was coming back to this idea of what we, you know, what we call opportunity architecture. So what is that? It's really about the, the, the three things you can do. and we, we, we term these the unseen laws of hustle. Right? One is kind of the heart layer, which is to hustle in your heart. And that is to do something that moves you every day. 
And in putting yourself in motion, that motion or movement itself will imbue you with a sense of energy and enthusiasm and excitement. Uh, and the reason why is because when you're in motion, you find that your mind is less occupied or preoccupied and that you're physically present in your body. And that is going to allow you to you know, discover the, the serendipity or unexpected things. So the first thing is really to do something that moves you. Uh, if you're drawn to certain issues or experiences or events, that is going to put you in a position to meet someone new. We've already covered that opportunity is connected to people or attached to people. Jobs are attached to people. Experiences are attached to people. So you want to you want to focus on that. The second um, this notion of hustling in your head, right? The head is that kind of strategic, analytical, creative, imaginative space. What? Why? How do you do that? And why do you do that? Well, you do that because you're looking for opportunity, right? You have to suss it out. You have to usually. Where might there be an opportunity here? How do you connect ideas? How might you connect uh, an experience to something artistic that you want to do or you want to explore in your work? And you only can do that by, by channeling what we call the second unseen law, which is to keep your head up and your eyes open. When you keep your head up and your eyes open, things begin appearing to you in new ways. And you can start sort of seeing the unseen or the hidden opportunity that so many people overlook. And the beauty of that is when you're looking for things, you'll find that luck finds you as well. Because it's that, that luck of motion or movement. That's a hustle luck. And, and that's a very magical force. Uh, so that's the second thing. And the third thing is, um, is sealing the deal to make it real. And that's the third law, which is to say that, you know, you, you shouldn't, you know, if you've just met someone, make sure it's sort of obvious, but very practically, get their contact information. So here's a, a, a good tip for people. Don't carry a card with you. Make sure you yes. collect someone else's card. Right, yeah. so the hack I know, there I is say, that one as well. Absolutely, because it works. And I'll give you another example. I was at a very prominent art fair. <laughs> this is going back a year and a half, and I was with some business partners of mine. And I, I want, and I said, I want to show you something uh, to prove that this works. I, and I introduced myself to the artist. He's a, a very well-known artist from Miami. And I said, Hi, I'm blah blah blah. I'm a producer, and I'm really interested in your work. And I was, and that was totally authentic. Um, I said, Do you have Do you have a card? And what did the artist say to me? No, I'm sorry, I don't have a card. May I have yours? Well, why did they do that? Of course, and I, I had just seen them give out a card because they wanted to ensure the information, my name, and that validation. They wanted to seal the deal to make it real. They wanted to, to create some kind of transaction where they have that value exchange, and now they've got me, right? They've got my contact, and they know I'm hungry for more. That's the point. So, you, you know, so it's not a, like, I'm hustling or one-upping someone. No, it's actually I'm opening up so that I can I can create these relationships, and I would argue that every relationship you enter into is to some degree a partnership, right? Most people don't see it that way, but that's the way I see the world. So for me, it you know it's always been a journey of sussing out people I think are interesting and projects that are interesting, and building uh, a partnership around those people and projects, and looking at it like uh, over the long haul, like how can we can create value in the world or move people in the world in some way. Right, that's what you're looking for. It's not, you know, it's not simply a quantity thing. It's really a quality thing, and and uh, and again, you know, life is very short. So, you know, choose your partners wisely. Right. Yeah. The, this, which is interesting because I get people saying things like, "Ah, oh, but but you know, I don't have so many friends, or I just don't know a lot of people." But like, that's something you can actually physically wake up and start working on, you know, and actually have a spreadsheet, basically which you can see it grow uh, eventually over time. Um, 
one thing that I want to talk about, you touched on it, but I just want to kind of have a little section about it, is manufacturing luck. Because the concept of luck seems to a lot of people like it's something that when it's, when it's called luck, it just comes out of the blue, like a miracle, someone would say. Uh, but in the book, you have, I think, a section that talks about manufacturing luck. How, how do you explain that? Well, this is one of the more, um, I'd argue, one of the more sort of mystical things in life. Um, yeah, different levels of luck. Um, but the way that we studied it and kind of broke it down is, is based on the work of, of Dr. James Austin, um, who was a, actually a medical doctor, but also was sort of fascinated by this idea of, of chance and serendipity. And um, what we say is that, and, and so this is my theory, and it has been forever, is that, that luck is actually... Uh, more of a, a genetic tool that's hard-coded into our DNA, and it tends to bubble up from deep within our bone marrow um, just when we need it, right? And, and I think, you know, experience will, will validate that for most people. Um, but, it, it, well, then it's like, well, how do, you, how do you explain, you know, those who are unlucky? Well, there's an explanation for that as well. Um, but it, mo most of this comes around this idea that we innately have an ability to manufacture our own luck in four different ways. And, um, and again, I, I think it's a, a primal experience, but it's also very practical. And the big piece of it is by simply putting ourselves in motion. Now, let's back up for a second. So the science of luck is um, derived, you know, from, and, and, just like, and broken into these, these different layers. One is what we just simply experience as random luck or dumb luck. It's the luck of you, you know, walking into, or you, you, sorry, you um, uh, going and buying a lottery ticket, right, and and you win, uh, or you know, you're, it's it's a very crowded, um, uh, you know, say art fair you're at, and um, you know, someone drops a, a million dollar bill and you pick it up, right, and and they say no, 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 you keep it. This is random or dumb luck, okay? Yes. It's it just happens spontaneously to some degree, and there's no no clear explanation by it. You know, people might call it karma. Or, or chance, but it's just random. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It doesn't make any sense. The second, and I think it's absolutely critical, is this notion of hustle luck. Well, this is a luck that's created by your momentum and motion every day. And it's a luck that, you know, could be derived from, say, a conversation of meeting someone at a coffee shop who happens to be a fan of the type of work you do. Well, how do you generate that? Because you put yourself in the position to have a conversation, to show your work, and they said, wow, that's really interesting. I'd love to have a, a deeper conversation about that. And yes. guess what, Gray? I'm going to commission you to do a $20,000 um, mural on the ceiling of my bedroom because I think it's so cool and I want to you know, wake up and go to sleep to that every night, right? It's, it's right. that kind of experience. Striking up conversations with random people leads to you know, what we call hustle luck, a luck of motion. And, and the thing is, like, it's that great unknown space. But again, it's not the luck of standing still. It's a or, or being stagnant. It's a luck of movement, right? The next luck is what we call hidden luck, and hidden luck is more interesting. It requires generally more imagination, and it's a luck that that we say you know where sort of chance favors the, the prepared mind. It's a luck through it comes by way of creative synthesis. It's the experience of what you've you've done in the past uh, that has brought you into a situation in the present. And being able to also sort of see the future and make these connections of ideas and concepts and designs. Um, so part of this is uh, is about exploring your skill set and applying it in novel ways, in innovative ways, right? 
Um, the, the example we use in the book is Casey Neistat, who, of course, is the, the famous YouTube teller. Um, yeah. You know, he's a, he's always been about a sort of work in progress and blends his talents into, you know, really interesting visual stories. And, you know, that allowed him to be discovered, but also allowed him more risk and to try new things. And again, that's about surfacing this, these experiences that people, that really resonate with people. And that's allowed him to succeed, you know, um, and to keep moving. And then that, like, you know, that's, that's really interesting. And then the, the last one I think is most, most interesting to me personally is this idea of quirky luck. And quirky luck is really about um, the luck that we innately possess based on who we are, just by being ourselves and our strange quirks and our our you know way of you know conversing with others and our, our sort of way of being you know and and that's that can draw a lot of people to us you know if we do strange things or we you know take interesting risks and <laughs> we we use our art as an extension of our being you know it can either repel people or bring them toward you and attract them in big ways and in interesting ways. Um, so those, you know, there's four types of luck, and if, if we think about that for a second, we should all recognize that to be alive is a gift, and a part of that gift is that we're lucky, and then we can make ourselves luckier every day. And even for the most skeptical among us, I'd ask them or challenge them to reflect on some experiences that they can't simply explain. Well, I bet you some degree of luck isn't involved there, like if, you, if you're successful, if someone discovering your work, or noticing a quirk about you and saying, you know, you're a really interesting being, I want to talk to you more. Those are examples of luck. Right. So, I mean, I can go on on and on and ask you questions. I would just recommend the guys who haven't read your book to actually find it on Amazon or in their favorite bookstores and have a look at it. Uh, But one thing that maybe would uh, finish with is that most of the listeners of this podcast are actually high-driven individuals, you know, trying to hustle as much as they can working long hours, typically like myself, and, you know, some of them got two jobs, or maybe they have to a job and their own hustle on the side. So just 24 hours isn't just enough, you know, to sleep in the same 24 hours, and then to work just doesn't quite work. What do you, with your story, how do you break that down? Or what is your perspective of, like, what should work be arranged or scheduled like? I think that's very subjective, Gray, and I think each of us knows um, our, you know, the best times of the day for us to work, and the best circumstances. You know, again, if it's quiet time late at night, or if it's early in the morning, or if it's in the middle of the day, you know when you're at your best, and that also requires a few things. You know, one is, um, you know, you have to know yourself, know your body, and know your mind, and that also means you need to take care of yourself. You're not going to be as productive, creative constructive or effective in your work if you're treating your body like a garbage can you know you can't do that so you've got to find one way to sort of treat yourself well so that you can be imaginative and creative and feel rested and have energy and enthusiasm and resources Uh, another thing that's important is that um, you know you uh, you also need to you know think about um, like what is a good ritual system like you know owning your time so you know might it be a block of like four hours every day where it's kind of it's unimpeded and uninterrupted is that possible for you might it be a shorter block again it's it's you taking some degree of ownership over your time and i don't know what that looks like for you but for me it is um i actually have a very very structured schedule um so that and i review it every week 
and it sounds a little obsessive compulsive, but the reason why I do that, and, and I also have, you know, white space in my calendar as well for, you know, more creative pursuits and the serendipity that we talked about. But the reason you do that is that you, you don't want to allow anyone or anything else to set you off track. You have enough bombarding you every day. So you say, you know, that's the time that you're going to take ownership of so you can do your best work. Uh, so, for example, if it means, you know, getting in into the studio at 6 or 7 a.m. and working for a few hours, uh, you know, the, much as like how we did with the book, like we were very structured about it. And then, you, you know, allow yourself to unfocus and unstructured as well. And then find, um, if it means like, you know, you're working six days a week and you're on a crazy deadline and you're producing a series of works or studies or something like that, then, you know, it's knowing that you're going to need on the tail end of that to do what's called counterbalancing, which is to say you're going to recharge and you're not going to do any work. You're going to step away from it for a while. But it's finding those little blocks of times when you can be most effective and most productive, scheduling them regularly, being mindful of that, and, uh, and also not burning yourself out. I mean, you, you know, as you know well, you know, I had a stroke when I was in my mid-20s working at a startup. In, um, and at the time, I was doing a lot of stuff in the video world. And uh, it, was in, in, it was in the education space. And it was fascinating, but it was too much. And on top of that, I was trying to do, you know, I was working on my first film and not sleeping and drinking way too much coffee and just not taking care of myself. Well, you know, I learned that the hard way. And I'm very fortunate to be able to have a conversation with you, Gray. But I would yeah. like to spare other people the, the burden or weight of that kind of misery because it's not fun to go blind and, and lose your mental faculties and not be able to articulate your thoughts. Um, so instead, it's like, okay, uh, forget about balance, but instead think about structuring your life so you can be productive as an artist over the long haul. And that means creating those rituals where you have time dedicated for work and then time dedicated to, to unwork, right? Unscheduling. Right. Um, that sounds totally awesome. Exactly what I thought you would say because I read your, your article as well on this specific subject. Uh, and then while somebody would say, okay, I work for a company. I don't work for myself. But I think... My best time to work is in the morning. Is maybe starting from eleven, going up, or I work better mm -hmm. in the evening. How do I? How do they go about it? Because it seems like the nine to five culture is just like, is the standard. So it, it regardless of how, <laughs> regardless of how good you work and how you how you play around your hours. And my take on that, what I did is like I understand myself. My best work hours, I work really really good at night, and yeah. so I I try to sleep around two or three in the a.m. and maybe wake up late, more, uh, later in the morning. Uh, but I really don't care so much of what I do like from 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock to like around 11. From there, that's when actually my day, my day starts. And I don't know how someone else would approach that if they're like cons uh, conservatively under the 9 to 5 bubble. Sure. Well, again, it, you know, this, is, is, this too is an idiosyncratic, subjective, and also can be a very quirky experience. Uh, yeah. So let's let's take let's take the situation where you are a nine to fiver. Let's say the careerist, right? You're in that love your job and and that's great. And, and you're looking for an outlet so you can create you know art on the side, as many artists do. Uh, or maybe you are a full time artist and you don't have any kind of schedule. Well, that can be very challenging, right? Because you have to create your own structure and try to be you know ritualistic and you know sort of rigid with it so you're productive. Well, I would say this that you have you I. Anyone else in the world, um, <laughs> the bird just, that just flew by my window has 24 hours in a day. 
And within those 24 hours, you know, some component of that is going to be dedicated to sleeping. Some component of that is going to be dedicated to eating. Some component of that is going to be dedicated to hopefully to exercise. And some component of that is going to be dedicated to study and, and work. Okay, so if that's the case, then you need to be responsible and prioritize when you think you'll be able to work. And if, it's, if you are doing the 9 to 5 thing, you, maybe you get up a couple of hours early and you, you make this space, and even to, if it's only three days a week, just so that you can be creative and get out and get your work done. Or it could be after work, you know, if you have the energy for it. Or maybe it's taking a nap after you work and then getting up and, and writing for two hours or shooting your film or, you know, illustrating. It's, um, but again, it's, it's subjective. You have to find the blocks that work. And I would also say this. Experiment with time and experiment with the schedule because there's no right or wrong way to do it. You have to find what works for you. And again, it's getting back to that sense of rhythm where you can be productive, right? Where you're not burning yourself out and that you're enjoying the process of working, even though it can be miserable at times. It's like you're working towards something. And that is where you can draw fulfillment. If you're, I mean, it can be a real problem. And I can remember, you know, as I said before, like, you know, you overwork, right? Where you're, you're putting yourself in a position where you're suffering or sick. That's not what work's about. So it's, you know, it's finding those moments and maybe it's like, you know, dedicating time on your weekends where you're only going to be working in the studio. And like, that's, you know, you get away and work in your studio and that's what you're doing. And during the week, it's, you know, you're, you're focused on your career. Um, on the other hand, if you're a full-time artist and you have that, that luxury, God, what a luxury that is, then, uh, then look, you know, you, you know what works best for you and you can be completely quirky about it. You can work from, you know... 10 in the evening until 7 in the morning or something like that and find your sleep during the day if you want to do that. But you have to find what allows you to focus, what allows you to feel uh, like you're empowered and you're, you're really in a good groove on your work. And that can be very challenging. But, uh, but you know, use your calendar. Like, it's there. <laughs> it's a great tool. It's there for a reason. And uh, no one else is going to do it for you. So, you know, I, and then not only, not only do it, but do it now. Like when you, as you're listening, like pause this podcast, take a look at your calendar. Are you blocking time or making time or allocating time for you to do work every week? If you're not, you're probably not going to be productive. That would be my argument. Right. But then say, what would be the tactical approach? I know it's, uh, it's subjective as well. What would be the tactical approach for somebody to negotiate timing at work, for example? I mean, you're a, a startup guy. You have employees. <laughs> what would you appreciate as an approach for, uh, from one of your employees to say they're trying to negotiate time? What would you react to that? Say, I come to you and I say, I don't really work that well in the morning. I'm a, sort of a night person. Can I start working late mm -hmm. at 10 or 11, then maybe finish a little bit later as well in the evening. How do you react to that? I would say this. Um, I don't believe in conventions. I think what I do believe in is quality of work and right. uh, that, that everyone is sort of in the project together and has responsibility. As long as you're delivering quality work and you're open, honest, and transparent about your needs, I would be totally supportive, Gray, right? So yes. I, I think it's, it's up to you know, the person that you're working for or with to help you sort that out. And the key there is to approach them and be very open and general and say, look, my best work is done between these hours. And here's the body of work, that proof that we talked about from the pop layer before. Like, here's the proof. I did this work, produced it, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's a pretty logical argument. Um, why does anyone have to uh, honor the conventions of 8 to 5 or 8 to 6 or 9 to 7 or whatever it might be? Instead, say, look, you know, we're in a 40-hour work week world. We really are. 
and the conventions yeah. of that, you know, that nine to five should be thrown out the window. I would argue they're very much a vestige, an anachronism that, that no longer fits in this world. Um, so, so move away from that old world model. You have to find, and if the people are rigid on that, if they're unlike me and they're rigid and say, no, you know, everyone works this way and so therefore everyone should, well, it's time to find a new place to work. That's the simple answer. Or to find a boss who says, you know what, I get it and I'm going to support that idea, but you have a huge responsibility. They're paying you, number one, so you, you better make sure you come through with it, right? And, uh, and so, the, you know, this is really a big, uh, I think, communication issue or even a crisis, I'd say, because um, I think, you know, especially among millennials and, and folks who are even younger, you know, there, there is a desire to have that more autonomy. And I think autonomy is great, especially as an artist. You need that. Um, so the, the structural piece is, you know, having, putting yourself on a deadline and honoring that. As long as you can do that and produce great work, I'm open to it. And I'd say, you know, have that conversation with your boss and say, look, you know, I need to talk about schedule because I know that I'm most productive working on this schedule. And you define that and say, you know, it, if you allow me to have that, that flexibility, I will agree to producing X, Y, and Z by this date, right? And it's going to be high quality and getting feedback along the way and so forth. So again, you're working in partnership. You're defining it along unconventional lines, right? Because you're not a robot or automaton. You're not programmed to you know get up at seven and go to work from nine to five and come home and that's not the way it works. You're a human being and, and especially as an artist, you have needs and wants. If you have family involved, then it gets a little more complex. So you have to find what works for you and you have to have, pe have to find people, uh, partners, uh, bosses, etc., who are are supportive of that. And that can be a hard thing to do. And that takes time. You need to build that trust as well. Um, as a freelancer, it can be a little more you know uh, navigatable. Right. Okay, uh, thanks so much, John. I really appreciate it. It was a blast. Uh, My pleasure, Gray. Looking forward to this conversation. Whenever you hit Cape Town, just let me know. Um, I can show you a few really good spots for coffee, beer, food, whatever you, you can name. Trust me. <laughs> as long as we can uh, stay away from the Great Whites, I'm, I'm very happy. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Not there. Definitely not. There are some big sharks there, my man. So, yes, I look oh, yeah, forward yeah. to it, Gray. And thanks so much, man. I really enjoyed speaking with you. And uh, and I hope your audience takes some value away. And if um, if any of them wants to further explore any of the points that we made, you know, obviously I encourage them to pick up a copy of Hustle. I believe it's available. I think we're in 11 or 12 countries now, um, including South Africa. And uh, yes. and beyond that, they can reach me um, just, uh, just by writing Jonas at hustlegeneration.com. That's easy, or you know, you can check out um, any of you know Koffler Pictures or some of the other projects, um, and uh, we'll continue the conversation. And that was the end of my conversation with John. Uh, if you have anything else to say, you know what to do. Go on the website and comment. You can also Google him and find him on Twitter and all these kind of things like that. But I just want to say thanks for taking your time listening to this and reaching to this point over an hour. It's actually of a rare bleed in this day and age for a human being to be able to concentrate for an hour listening to online content. I mean, keeping in mind of all these distractions that we have, our phones and all the cat videos online, which is entertaining sometimes, but it's not easy to make time for things that are actually important or that can help your life to improve in one way or another so i say thank you and remember to uh 
support the podcast by subscribing or leaving a five-star review on iTunes. And stay awesome. Thank you.